Today, our scripture reading comes from 1 Corinthians 13 from the New International Version. If I speak in tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does, dis it does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part that I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Imago. How is everybody? Are we having a good day so far? It's lovely outside. Um, today is the third, I think the third installment of our series on deconstruction and looking at the faith through the lens of Jesus. And I know we've already discussed a little bit about what deconstruction is. I'll be defining it um, from my perspective as well. Um, to start with, I have to say, I did become a Christian at 16, converting from Mormonism which I had converted to from nothingism. And so for me, deconstruction has always just been part and parcel of the faith journey. As I've grown and evolved and developed in my understanding of myself and the world and the divine to the best as I can, um, things have had to shift and change and grow. And so for me, deconstruction isn't so much about burning a house down, it's about taking stock um, rearranging sometimes. Sometimes you got to conmari that stuff and get rid of, of the things that are lingering that aren't actually part of, of your life anymore. And sometimes you bring new things in. Um, the what has become much less important to me than the why. And what I mean by that is some of the things I believed before I was even a Christian, I still believe today. Um, the why might have changed. Um, there might have been times that I had to examine certain things I believed to ask myself, you know, based on my new understanding of God or myself or the world, does this still hold true for me? Um, because cognitive dissonance is a thing that I believe should always be examined, even if we have to sit with it for a time. And there are some things that I've come back to and said, yes, I do still believe this thing, and I still believe it for the same reasons. Or I believe it, but for different reasons now. Um, there are things that I used to think were absolute tenets of the faith that I no longer believe at all. There are things that I used to think were heresy that now are core to my beliefs. Um, 
And so for me, it's about pulling the thread when you see it. Sometimes that will unravel a whole gar garment. Um, and that can be kind of these crises or, or dark nights of the soul that we think about when we think about deconstruction. But sometimes it's just a matter of mending or adding a new patch or repurposing something in a different way. So hopefully this idea of deconstruction doesn't feel like, well, if I'm gonna deconstruct my faith, I have to take the whole thing down, knock over the Jenga tower entirely and start from scratch. Because that's not necessarily the case. It's about mindfulness and intention. And it's about asking ourselves why we believe what we believe. So with that, um, my topic today is sin. I mean, it's a light, you know, kind of minor thing, but we decided to include it. Um, so with that, I do want to ask, just open it up, and I'm sorry, we won't be able to do the online comments just because of the tech stuff that was happening earlier, but for the people in the room, I want to open it up to anybody who's comfortable. What have you believed to be true about sin? What it is, its consequences, or its effects? Yeah. Um, so to paraphrase a little bit, did believe, grew up in a system that believed that sin was a list of rules that we follow, um, but sometimes those rules were in contradiction to love, and now it's more about do we take 1 Corinthians 13 seriously and do we act out of love? And, and that is like basically my sermon. So I'm going to go ahead and dive in so that you guys don't finish it up for me. Um, so I, uh, as I said, I converted um, and I came into the faith through a very small, very charismatic in the 90s, think Vineyard Revival, um, Assemblies of God-influenced evangelical church. So I had a very particular understanding of sin that reflected a lot of what people have said they've believed in the past. The best way I can describe what I thought about sin through my teens and 20s is to tell you a story that I spent years working on. Um, I was a charismatic with a, a love of storytelling, all things Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, so I spent literally years on names and developing languages and topography and what is the, the, the vegetation in a swamp so that I could really get a background for the story. I wanted to tell the story of my conversion. And so our heroine starts on a small island that is full of golem-like creatures who keep her intentionally sick and weak. And um, they're afraid of the power that she has. And so they have designated her to tend to their dead. The most unclean, uh, unhealthy, awful parts of their society. And they tell horrible stories about the mainland that mostly appears to be consumed by flame always with a dark cloud of smoke above it. Eventually, the girl gets strong enough and desperate enough that she chooses to run away. And she finds her way to the shore, and she hears these light whisperings that there is a kingdom somewhere in this, in this wilderness that is a place of love and joy and peace and sparkles and happiness. And so she thinks, if I can only make it there, then I will, I will know what to do next. So she goes on a long and arduous journey. She meets friends and enemies and guides along the way. And eventually she finds that the kingdom is real. And she is invited into the throne room of the king and his son. And they are pure light, pure holiness, pure goodness. 
but she is, both internally and externally, nothing but unclean. Her whole life has been unclean, her soul is unclean, everything about her is wrong. And so if she were to step into their presence, their goodness would, would ignite her. It would cleanse her to the point where there would be nothing left. So in order to allow her to pass in to the throne room, there is a, um, a, an ever-flowing curtain of blood that she must pass through. And this blood will cleanse all of that impurity from her. And it's like an ever-flowing doorway that she can pass through. And so she does, and it's excruciating, and it burns up everything that's in her and most of what's outside of her. But when she enters into this throne room, she is enveloped in the love and goodness that is there, and she is made part of the community. And that was my understanding of sin. It is what I am. It is what I do. It is what I think. My instincts are sin by nature because they're of the flesh. Um, anything that comes from me is sin. So everything is suspect. Everything has to be checked off according to these lists of rules that we have to determine whether or not I'm doing what I can and then just begging God to do the rest on my behalf. Eventually that changed. <laughs> Um, that wasn't an overly sustainable viewpoint, even though I held it for uh, probably close to two decades. So some of the factors that led to me changing my theology of sin, and, and before I even say that, and I'm going to say this again later, but if you do still believe some version of that, if you believe in original sin, if you believe that there is a part of us that does have to be redeemed before we can enter into the presence of God, you are welcome to think that. What I'm describing is my journey in understanding sin. You might have a very different understanding, and that is completely okay. So I want to make sure that we know there is space for disagreement at every single point that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through. Um, so for me, one of the things that changed was that our analogies of sin stopped working. You know, one of the big ones that I was always told when we went into, like, evangelism events was if somebody has a broken leg, it's loving to tell them they have a broken leg and convince them to let you reset it because they might be able to hobble along on their broken leg, but they're not living their full life with that leg broken. And so the loving thing to do is to tell them their leg is broken until you've worn them down into admitting their leg is broken and then they let you re-break and, and, and set it. At some point that stopped working for me. Um, one of the, the specific events, I worked a lot with World Vision at the time because I was a youth pastor and we did a lot of events. And um, the AIDS epidemic in Africa was one of the main things that they were really working to address. So they were handing out condoms and things like that. And there was a musician that I had a lot of admiration for. He had actually got me through some really tough spiritual seasons, but he and I ended up in this really lengthy um, email debate on whether or not World Vision should be doing this. Because his opinion was that to stop them from the consequences of their sin was to um, fly in the face of God and that what World Vision needed to be doing was teaching that sex outside of marriage was wrong. AIDS epidemic be damned. I just couldn't. <laughs> It was one of the first times that I really came at odds with somebody that I admired and respected and had to figure out how do we proceed in relationship when I, I just absolutely, 
I'm supposed to agree with you based on my understanding of sin, but I just don't. Like, there are children and, and, and women and men dying of a disease that we could at least prevent so that they live long enough to hear the gospel. Um, another thing that changed for me was that I just continued to be exposed to people of different faiths and lifestyles and belief systems. Um, you know, I met amazing Catholics and Buddhists and all sorts of people who didn't even have a faith tradition but who were living out all of the things that Jesus said to live out. And I started to have a really hard time with the idea that these people were gonna be damned because they had never heard the name Jesus or they didn't ascribe to a religion. One of them was an artist who passed away far too young, uh, was a good friend of mine, and at his funeral, I heard echoed over and over and over the same experience I had had with him. Great looking guy, amazing artist, super talented, but when you were in a conversation with him, you inevitably felt like the best looking, most intelligent, most talented person in the room. And he did all of that for every single person he met. And I just feel like I've never met anybody who had that level of impact that Jesus did anywhere close to this guy. Because people walked away from him feeling like authentically the best versions of themselves and empowered to go out and, and do good things because they knew they had it in them, because somebody had seen it and drawn it out. He didn't just create beauty, he saw it and he, he knew how to, how to bring it out um, in, in his environment. I have a hard time saying that he was going to hell. <laughs> um, I also struggled um, politically uh, with certain things like at the time, he hearing from the pulpit over and over again that we needed to vote um, based on the issue of abortion at all costs, but capital punishment was fine. <laughs> and we didn't seem to have any issues with the contradiction that often the party who supports one is opposed to the other. And to me, the idea of honoring life needed to be reflected in both of those. Um, not that you didn't have to choose, but I didn't understand the constant emphasis on just this one very singular political point, not that it wasn't important, but the exclusion of all others. And lastly, I discovered that there were people out there who had other ways of being Christians. Um, Cornerstone Music Festival was uh, hugely influential for me. I think I probably mention it every single time I preach, but I found all sorts of people who were talking about feminism and Christianity and anarchy and 17th century philosophy and how it impacts how we live out the faith today. And I realized that my small little farm community church wasn't the only way to be a Christian. And I just didn't know that. Um, and eventually coming to Imago and hearing Charlie talk about, um, and people still reference this today, that God's story with humanity didn't start in Genesis 3 with temptation and the fall and sin. It starts in Genesis 1 when God breathed himself into humanity and called it very good. Like, that's our starting point, and I think we do forget that. But being in a faith community that emphasized that made a difference for me in how I understood all of this. So what is sin today? For me, the definition that I use is that sin is that which violates love or causes harm, violates love, or causes harm. And that's within context of my relationship to God, because I do believe that is an individual relationship. Others, 
our created world, and ourselves, um, which is a key part of this. Um, and so I'm gonna give a couple of examples, and I'm not trying to make anybody squirm or pick any fights. I'm just using some examples that I think reflect some of what this looks like in context. Most of us know that fast fashion, places like Old Navy and, and The Gap and pretty much any place that you could find at a mall to buy clothes, um, we know that they're involved with exploitation. We know that throughout the, the supply chain, there is the oppression of people, unfair wages, unsafe labor practices, um, a lot of issues that go into um, making those $5 t-shirts that at the end of the day are resulting from the exploitation of other humans. However, not everybody has the financial ability to go out and buy certified organic, um, humanely sourced hemp or cotton to make their own clothes or clothes that are certified as such. And so if your choice is clothing your child or being able to buy clothes for a job where you need to look professional and all you can afford is the $5 t-shirts, is it a sin knowing that by giving your money to that company, you are in some ways supporting that exploitation? In this instance, defining sin is complex. We also really like to harp on big box stores like Walmart. We know that they don't treat their employees super well. The pay is not great. There's no work-life balance. But for a lot of people working there, it's the only place they're going to be able to get a paycheck. And for a family with a baby who's lactose intolerant, who can't afford formula anywhere else, or again, for the young single person who barely has two pennies to rub together and needs to buy groceries for the week, they really might not have another option. Now, we can get into the discussions of system, systemic issues and all of that, but at the end of the day, deciding whether or not to support a place like that by shopping there means that defining sin is complex. Personal finances, something we don't talk a ton about here, but just to, to kind of put it out there, sometimes, you know, if somebody in their personal life um, tends to spend, doesn't save well, is kind of reckless with their spending, in and of itself, that might not be sinful behavior. It might not be the most wise, but it might not be sinful. But if you're in a partnership with somebody who has childhood-based financial anxieties, then the context changes. And now, reckless spending, putting no effort into saving, might become a sin because you are disregarding your love for this person. Boundaries are important and conversations need to be had in relationship, but defining sin can be complex. I am also a situational ethicist, and what that means is that I think that context matters not only in terms of who you are, but the situation you are in. An easy example is lying. How many times in my evangelical life did we debate whether or not it's a sin to lie to somebody about a surprise birthday party? I mean, hours spent in the minutia of, well, is it a sin that's like, okay, like, is, does a white lie exist? It's not even on the radar. It's not on the radar. Lying as part of the Underground Railroad or in Nazi Germany to protect Jewish people, I would say was a virtue, not a sin at all. 
But if you're lying to your partner about where you're spending your free time, even if you're not doing anything illicit, that's a violation of love and trust within that relationship. And so lying in that context might be a sin. Um, I always use this example when I'm talking about situational ethics. My dear friend Jeff and I have had discussions um, where we've talked about the fact that I am a pacifist. He believes that there are instances when um, violence can be just, just war, that kind of thing. If me and Jeff were both in a situation where there was a vulnerable person, vulnerable person and an aggressor, for me it would be sin to react in violence without trying to find a third way, finding a way to de-escalate, finding any other way to navigate that situation. For Jeff, it would be sin not to use every ability he had, including force, to protect that person. Same situation, the definition of sin is different based on what each of us believe to be true. And what he believes to be true is just as valid as what I believe to be true. And so defining sin can be complex. And that is not meant to be a cop-out. It is meant to illuminate the fact that this is not as simple as a list of rules. I would rather have 635 rules to follow than to try to constantly navigate what the world looks like when you are being driven by love and lack of harm. And then the second part of my definition of sin goes back to what's already been said, that which separates me. Again, within those relationships. Separates me from God, separates me from others, separates me from the created world, or separates me from myself. And I'm going to start off by saying that I believe that separation is an illusion. I believe the point of the cross and the resurrection was Jesus trying to show us once and for all there is no separation. The New Testament tells us that nothing can separate us from the love of God. But we really think that we're bigger than that. We really think we can be bad enough to disprove that. It's just not possible. And so I believe that... that we are part of a human family, that we are connected to the people both in Russia and in Belarus and in West Africa. We are connected to the people in China and Japan. We are all one family. And under the idea that we are citizens of a kingdom of God, that matters more than anything that separates us. We're part of the created world. As much as technology um, has told us that we can be separate, we can protect ourselves from the seasons and the rhythms of what's happening outside. We're disconnected from the animals that we, that we eat or that we keep in our homes or that we hunt. We are all connected. And it doesn't mean that any of those ways of interacting are bad, but just the acknowledgement. I mean, it's why I absolutely love the story of the hunter in Snow White, who honors and respects every animal that he kills and takes the time to fully acknowledge that that animal is giving its life and someday he will die and he will give his body to the natural world. We are inextricably connected to all of these things. Sin is anything that we do or engage in or support that strengthens the illusion. So bigotry and racism, and calling what is evil good, calling what is good evil. These are things that support the illusion that we are separate. Self-hatred and condemnation and shame are all illusions that we put in place to separate ourselves from ourselves. 
And none of these things were ever meant to be part of our human experience. I personally am a universalist. Um, I do not believe in the damnation of souls to an eternal hell. That is a conversation for another time. And I am happy, honestly, to discuss that with anybody who's ever curious about how I landed there. But the last thing I want to say on this before we move on is that that view impacts what I believe to be true about sin. It impacts what I believe happened on the cross, what the resurrection means, um, and those beliefs impact what I believe to be true about sin. And so if you are taking the time to examine some of what you believe about these things, just realize you can't compartmentalize. They're all going to impact each other, and that's okay if it feels messy. You don't have to have a full system of belief on paper ready to present if somebody asks. But this is why I believe that the examination is so important. Relationship with self. I am not a psychologist or psychiatrist. I'm just going to make a few basic statements. Do you love yourself with the love of 1 Corinthians 13? Do you love yourself holding no record of wrong? Do you believe the best about yourself and your intentions? Next time you read that chapter, ask yourself, do I speak to myself this way? Same with the fruit of the Spirit. Um, do you treat your physical, emotional, and mental well-being with love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, and self-control? Is that how you interact with yourself? Are you offering yourself the same grace, space for growth, compassion, and care you expect yourself to extend to others. At the end of the day, as much as we try to muscle through, the best that we offer the world is the overflow of what's already within us. And so the more that we can center and ground into the source of love, which is the heart and whole of who God is, the more that will be what flows out of us. And frankly, that's the antidote to sin. And you'll have to worry way less about sin if your focus is on that flow. We've said in this series that we want to focus on seeking the lens of Jesus. And so just a couple of passages, and you are welcome to look through these later. Um, Jesus' ministry was a deconstruction of the current understanding of Judaism. His entire teaching ministry was a new understanding of static principles that were still to be true. Matthew 5, 17 to 20, he says, Do not presume that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke of a letter shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Remember what he said on the cross. It is finished. I do believe that that is a direct connection to this until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever nullifies one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
For I say to you that unless your righteousness far surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, the leaders of the day, the religious scholars and and leaders of the day, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You could say that the entire rest of the New Testament is a community wrestling with deconstructing their Jewish faith in context of who Jesus was. Jesus also pressed on modern interpretations of the law. Um, The entire Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus consistently says, you have heard it said and quotes the law, but I say to you and redefines what that law was getting at. Moving people from the letter to the heart, always toward love. Whether he was talking about prayer and giving or murder and adultery, it was always to reorient them back to love. He also criticized the leaders of his day for overcomplicating God's expectations of his people. Matthew 23 starts with Jesus addressing the crowds, telling them, do what the Pharisees tell you to do, but do not follow their example. And then there are these seven woes of the Pharisees. And it's basically a litany of Jesus publicly condemning the Pharisees for their hypocrisy and for them laying heavy burdens on the shoulders of the people trying to love God well while doing nothing to help them actually carry the burden. And Jesus defined the overarching goal and heart of the law. In Matthew 22, he says, it says, when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the other main ruling group of, of religious leaders, they all gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus the question, testing him, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two commandments to hang the whole of the law and the prophets. So some final thoughts. As I said earlier, the antidote to sin is love-seeking shalom. The idea of shalom is a, a whole and full peace. Peace with others, peace with creation, peace with God, and peace within yourself. Love that seeks shalom will remove sin from your life, not in context of living in a human experience, but in terms of what your focus is. Seek love that seeks shalom. As human beings, hopefully we are changing, our understanding changes, we're evolving, and we will be presented with new situations that explode any understanding we previously had on something, forcing us to redefine. Whatever term you choose, allow deconstruction to be part of your evolutionary process. Even if it means you never change a single thing that you believe, know why. I personally believe that I will always be wrestling with sin when I buy groceries or clothes, my relationship with food and money, my relationships with other people, and when I cast my vote. And I will always knowingly be committing sins in these ways. And that's what brings us to grace. We have been given so many tools that allow us to stay both mindful and free when it comes to sin. The daily examine, asking forgiveness from others, being willing to forgive others, the Lord's Prayer, and communion. These are all things that we've been given that allow us to name our sin, call it out, ask forgiveness, and then seek to do better. 
which is the same thing as growing in love. We ask for daily forgiveness, we forgive daily, and we participate in communion as a way of acknowledging to ourselves, our community, and our God that we have fallen short, but because we are loved so well, in spite of our falling short, we are continually strengthened to do better. And so before we go into the Apostles' Creed for communion, I want us to pray a brief prayer together. Um, There will be silence. It will be awkward. I'm going to let it be awkward. I will watch the time. I will not let you dissolve into silence forever. But I do think that this is just a chance to reflect. Do you agree with the definition of sin that I've presented? Do you not agree? Where do you see sin in your life that you would like to set at the foot of the cross today, to use an old term? And when we come to communion today, I want it to be because as a community, we are confessing to God and one another that we have sinned, but the forgiveness of God is greater, and that the love of this community will hold and support us as we continue to try to do better. You can stand if you want, you can stay seated, you can say it out loud. If you don't believe it, you don't have to say it at all. But if you would, as you're comfortable, pray with me. I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have sinned through my own fault, in my thoughts, and in my words, in what I have done, and in what I have failed to do. And I ask you, my brothers and sisters, to pray for me to the Lord our God. Take just a moment of silence. And pray with me once again. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Amen.